Rock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Monday, September 25th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Governor Kathy Hochul's budget director is asking state agencies for a spending freeze to deal with the state's largest budget gap since the recession. Fiscal watchdog groups agree it's the right move. Governor Hochul is on the right track to be looking for savings and efficiencies rather than committing to using the cash reserves in the first instance. We'll meet the black artist and local historian working with the Adirondack Experience Museum on a landscape painting of a place where a black man was killed in 1932. This is the history of our region and we need to understand what happened and we certainly need to establish facts. But in the second place, I think there is a question of social justice and justice for this man. And we'll pay a visit to the town of Indian Lake where school kids, seniors and tourism leaders and businesses are all working together to save monarch butterflies. All of that and more is coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by the Village Mercantile, Sarah Necklick, partnering with local nonprofit organizations to sell their merchandise through their e-commerce store. More at villagemerc.com. And by Apothecary Chocolates, making gourmet chocolates by hand from all-natural herbs, botanicals, and tree syrups. Apothecarychocolates.com. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Governor Kathy Hochul's budget director is asking state agencies for a spending freeze due to a mounting state deficit from Albany. Karen DeWitt reports. Hochul's budget director, Blake Washington, in a letter to state agency heads, writes that an end to three years of pandemic-era federal stimulus packages and lower-than-expected tax collections are fueling the gap. It's now estimated to reach $9 billion next year. That's the largest deficit since the Great Recession. Washington tells the commissioners that their agency spending request for the new budget should not total any more than the amount they were allotted in the current year's spending plan. He asks them to reevaluate their operations to find efficiencies and savings opportunities and to look to technological advances to cut costs for services and the delivery of government programs. Hochul spoke about the decision during her annual speech to the state's business council. I just told my all my agencies yesterday, hold the line on spending. We took care of a lot of disinvestment in places like our SUNY system and others because our educational system is what sets us apart. We have to continue investing in research and development in our universities, and I will continue doing that. But I said we cannot keep investing at the rate we did over the last two years. I had to make up for a lot of lost time. So everybody, keep it steady. 
Ken Girardin with the fiscal watchdog group the Empire Center says the governor is doing the right thing. Governor Hochul is on the right track to be looking for savings and efficiencies rather than committing to using the cash reserves in the first instance. Girardin says the state's financial problems are rooted in the pandemic era when for three years in a row the rate of spending rose above the rate of inflation. And he says when the new budget was approved in May, the governor and legislature left a $2 billion gap between expenses and the revenues to pay for them. And they sort of paper macheed over that with money that was lying around. What we're seeing now is that as folks essentially continue to expect the same level of spending increases and as the state tax revenue forecasts have been revised downwards, we see this roughly $10 billion budget gap opening up. Another fiscal uncertainty is the costs for housing and feeding the over 100,000 migrants that have entered the state in recent months. The governor said in August that aiding the migrants could cost an additional $4.5 billion. A recently announced agreement between President Joe Biden and Hochul that will allow asylum seekers from Venezuela to obtain work permits as early as November should ease some of that strain. But Girardin says there's no predicting when that crisis will subside. The biggest problem from a state budget perspective with the migrant crisis is that we don't know when it will peak. Hochul says one factor in the state's favor is that she spent the two years since she's been governor building up the state's reserve funds. We are now at about 18 percent reserves, 19 billion dollars, because when that rainy day comes, I don't want to have to be in a position to either raise taxes or cut services dramatically. So we are in a good place. Girardin urges Hochul to hold fast to that reserve and not to heed calls from progressive Democrats who want to use the money to fill spending gaps. Others are not as pleased with the spending freeze. Jasmine Gripper with the school funding advocacy group, the Alliance for Quality Education, says the decision means a cut to education and services for New York school children. She says that's because those needs continue to grow. She urges the state education department, which is not under direct control of the governor, to ignore the request and to submit a budget request that is based on meeting students' needs. The state agency budgets are due by October 11th. Hochul will present her new budget in January. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. this summer, people in Warren and Washington counties started reporting a strange thing to their local boards of elections. They said people claiming to be election workers were coming to their homes and accusing them of voter fraud. It turns out that was happening statewide. Now the group accused of making those visits has been served a cease and desist letter. Amy Feireisel reports. The group, which calls itself New York Citizens Audit, was reported in 13 different counties for approaching people at their homes and falsely accusing them of voter fraud. The Associated Press reports that State Attorney General Letitia James's office sent the group a cease and desist letter last week. In the letter, the AG's office said the canvassers reportedly used fake badges and identification to portray themselves as election workers. The New York Citizens Audit's executive director wrote in an email that the group is not engaged in any canvassing. On its website, the group says it is dedicated to, quote, honest, provable elections in New York and across the nation, end quote. The AG's office said in the letter that if allegations against the group are true, its actions could constitute unlawful voter deception and voter intimidation. 
The New York Citizens Audit was ordered to stop voter intimidation efforts and to turn over records and communications by October 2nd. Amy Feierisel, North Country Public Radio. The U.S. government is once again offering free at-home COVID-19 tests to the public. Starting today, each household could request four free tests. The announcement comes after COVID-19 hospitalizations have been on the rise for the last eight consecutive weeks. The Biden administration is investing $600 million to bolster manufacturing of at-home COVID tests. Officials say the new tests will detect the most recent COVID variants. You can order your free tests at covidtests.gov. A remote $5 million property on Little Tepper Lake has gone up for sale. It's the latest Adirondack property to be listed by John Hendrickson, who was married to the late philanthropist and industry heiress Mary Lou Whitney. After her death in 2019, Hendrickson became one of the largest private landowners in the Adirondack Park. In 2020, Hendrickson listed the 36,000-acre Whitney Park estate in Long Lake for $180 million. It's still on the market. New York State has said they'd like to buy it for the Adirondack Park Forest Preserve, but Hendrickson has said he will not sell the 36-acre parcel to the state. After six years, the Saranac River Walk in downtown Plattsburgh is officially completed. The 10-foot-wide path from Bridge to Broad Street is now open for walking and cycling. It connects previously separate parts of the Saranac River Trail that runs across Clinton County. The project was funded, was paid for by downtown revitalization funds. The city re- uh, received the grant in 2016. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's nine minutes past eight. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, we visit a small Adirondack town with a commitment to helping monarch butterflies survive. That conversation in just a couple of minutes right here on Northern Light. Music by December Wind, and a reminder that we're media sponsor for a concert by December Wind, performing native folk rock from Akwesasne. The band takes the stage this Saturday night, September 30th, at 7.30 p.m. at Pendragon Theater in Saranac Lake. And for more information and a link to tickets, check out our website, ncpr.org slash calendar. Hear more of their music at ncpr.org slash underscore. Northern Light is supported by Adirondack Experience, the museum on Blue Mountain Lake, presenting a full season of events and activities, now open seven days a week. Tickets at the adkx.org. In 2004, a mysterious collection of photos appeared at the Adirondack Experience, a museum in Blue Mountain Lake. They were taken in 1932 and show a dead black man tied to a toboggan surrounded by three white men. 
Doreen Alessi Holmes is the museum's collections manager. It's very troubling to look at the propped up corpse of a human and people just sort of standing around like, yeah, sure, take our photo with this trophy. And I don't know that that's what they were thinking, but that is how it plays today when you look at those photographs. Now the museum is trying to unravel the mystery behind those photos, and it's partnering with a black artist to bear witness to what really happened back in 1932. Emily Russell has the story. There's an old logging road in the central Adirondacks near Newcomb. On a warm, sunny day, it's where I meet Keith Morris Washington. He's an artist and professor who has stayed very humble about his work. I don't know if I've ever said this in an interview uh, before, but, you know, I'm always kind of astonished when a good painting happens. (laughs) It's all kind of this magic. You can see that magic in many of his landscape paintings and flower portraits. A lot of Washington's more recent work explores black identity in America. Washington uses art to highlight the violence that black people have faced in both the past and the present. For one project, Washington has been painting landscapes of lynching sites around the U.S. It's what brought him here to the Adirondacks. For me, part of this is to go to the places and and to bear witness. Um, Because it really is, for me, about honoring the memories of the victims. In this case, the victim was a black man who encountered two white men in these woods in March of 1932. According to historical records, they went their separate ways, but the two men reported the black man to police. A few days later, a larger group tracked him down, a gunfight ensued, and the black man was killed. Doreen Alessi Holmes from the Adirondack Experience is our guide out here today. As we walk down the road, she points out features in the landscape, obstacles the man must have had to endure while he was being tracked down by the group of white men. As we're moving forward, keep your eyes on that ridge ahead of us, because that is the Dunbrook Range, and it's an intimidatingly high and steep mountain, and I just can't imagine climbing up over that in the winter. Washington will paint this place, but not the violence that occurred here. His pieces focus more on the landscape, the beautiful and sublime aspects of it. He uses a series of squiggle marks, his description, to paint lush green grasses, tall trees, and wispy blue skies. Washington says his whole artistic process is more a tribute to life than to death. Even when I'm painting, I'm not thinking about uh, the tragic nature of the person's life, but really trying to think about the ways in which I'm honoring the person's life and documenting their history. Another person who's been working to document the history of what happened here is Eliza Jane Darling. She's an anthropology professor and former public historian for Hamilton County. This is the history of our region, and we need to understand what happened, and we certainly need to establish facts. But in the second place, I think there is a question of social justice and justice for this man. Darling has read the police and coroner's reports, piecing together what really happened over those few days in March. She's also read articles about the manhunt and the man's death, which made national news at the time. A headline in the New York Times from 1932 read, quote, wild man is killed in the Adirondack. Darling says the sensationalized media back then is similar to the racist stereotypes black people still face today. I mean, the headlines that this made could have been 
taken from today's headlines. They really could have. Um, you know, the overestimation of the man's threat, the dehumanization involved in calling him a wild man, the fact that his body was left exposed, um, the, the fact that someone called the police when there didn't appear to be any crime having been committed. Darling wrote two articles for the Adirondack Daily Enterprise a few years ago, laying out everything she learned about the killing. According to records, the man is buried in nearby North Creek. Darling says she hopes one day to figure out who the man was. Back on the old logging road, we pass coyote and deer tracks. Our guide, Doreen Alessi Holmes, points us to something fluttering atop some wildflowers. Just, there's an American Beauty butterfly over there right now. Um, and it's on a plant that's locally called Pearly Everlast. The Adirondacks are a place of deep wilderness and a lot of beauty, but they're also a place where prejudice and racism still exists. Artist Keith Morris Washington says that is still evident here today. As I was uh, driving in yesterday, I saw, you know, New York license plate and a Confederate plate underneath it. And it's just like, yeah, you can't get away from that kind of... um, ignorance. I'll I'll put it that way kindly. As we reach the end of the logging road, Washington stops to take a few photos. I ask him what's on his mind during an experience like this one. As I was walking to this place, um, you know, I was in a sort of broad way thinking about the victim and and, um, just sort of sending my thoughts to make a, a great painting for this person who we don't know their name yet, even. So there's a, a bit of a solemnness to it. Washington says his goal is to make a beautiful painting of a place with a tragic past. The Adirondack Experience will have the option to buy the piece and add it to its permanent collection, putting more of the Adirondack's history on display. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio, Newcomb. Keep up with stories and conversations from the NCPR newsroom all the time at our website, ncpr.org, or follow the station on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a minute, seniors and monarch butterflies in Indian Lake. That conversation in just a couple of minutes. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note. Through playing, birds practice skills they need to survive. We'll hear more coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Well, actually, a mild uh, first week of autumn, first full week of autumn, according to the Weather Service, with partly to mostly sunny skies today and tomorrow. Highs this afternoon, upper 60s, near 70. Light winds out of the east-northeast. Lows dipping into the 40s overnight again tonight. And uh, as I say, uh, mild tomorrow, highs near 70 with partly to mostly sunny skies. And that looks to be the case pretty much through the work week, at least, through the end of Friday, with um, highs this week near 70, light winds out of the east-southeast. Right now in uh, Canton, we have sunshine, 51 degrees.
There's a growing movement in communities around the North Country to do their part to help save monarch butterflies. Monarch numbers have dropped since the early 1990s, mainly due to a decline in milkweed, their primary food source. Garden clubs, environmental groups, and even entire communities have stepped up to create ecosystems and habitats healthy for milkweed and butterflies. Our Todd Moe recently visited a small town in the Adirondacks where school kids, seniors, tourism leaders, and businesses are all working together to save monarch butterflies. Drive or walk through downtown Indian Lake, and you'll likely find mesh butterfly houses in the windows of Main Street businesses, school classrooms, the library, even the town hall. Daisy Kelly, who helped organize Indian Lake's Monarch and Milkweed Trail, brings me to the local senior center. Oh, good. I talked to all while you're still here. Where about 10 folks sit around a big table sharing lunch and conversation. Many have mesh butterfly cages in their living rooms. Frances Hutchins has lived in Indian Lake since 1947, and she told me that she's released dozens of butterflies in her backyard this summer. Well, I got introduced to it when they brought them in here. I got interested in it, so then my daughter bought me a butterfly house, and I've been doing it for four or five years now. I could pretty near not doing it this year because there were so few caterpillars around. And I kept looking every day, and I'd see one or two, and maybe three. So one day I looked, and there was five, and some of them were good-sized ones. So I went home, put my butterfly house together, and went out to collect the, the caterpillars, and there were seven of them there. So, <laughs> so each day after that, I, <clears throat> I was collecting some until I got up to 30, and that's all my house was supposed to hold. Did you have, uh, did you have a butterfly story? Or? As a matter of fact, I do. Tell me your first name. Joe. When I was engaged to my wife, when we first dated, the monarch was flying around by the, by the water, and I held out my hand, and it came over and landed on my fingers, and said, my wife was stunned. She said, they don't do that. Especially at that time, we both smoked, and I figured the smell of nicotine, it shouldn't have happened. Since then, for what it's worth, there's a book over in the library called Butterflies and Blueberry Wine. I wrote that. It's in the library. Yeah, how nice. I used to have a purple blouse that attracted them. So they would come any time I wore that. And we got a lot in our yard because we got a lot of milkweed. We have a lot of monarchs flying around. So the color purple is a way of attracting, yeah. at least for you, it works yeah. for butterflies. Yeah. Um, can, can I have your first name? Esther. Esther, thank you very much. Are you doing anything with butterflies uh, in your own yards? Don't the, cut don't, the milkweed. Don't cut the milkweed. That's how they get up on the underside, and that's where they lay their eggs. So they need the milkweed, they need the wildflowers. I mean, it looks pretty. Yeah. You know, number one, and then <laughs> it serves a purpose. Yes, and it serves purpose. Yeah. I mean, as well as bees. Yeah. But the the journey that the monarch takes is unbelievable. Going down to to Mexico and and then coming back up 
but it takes three generations, was it? It takes three generations to get back up. It was crazy. Like, for something that you see, you're like, ah, oh, it's a butterfly. <laughs> Look a little bit closer and holy cow, it's a butterfly. Thank you. Can I have your first name? Nora. Nora, thanks, Nora. You're thanks welcome. for sharing. You've got a handful of butterfly pins. I do. We've got one of those cages. And I had um, 30. I can't remember how many chrysalises, and then we had like 12 um, butter, or caterpillars, and now the other day I released 10, and I released 3. Brittany, what's your last name? Cummins. I'm the site manager here, oh. and I live in Blue Mountain, but we own a place up in Seville. My husband goes all over, and whenever, like, we, we've got a camp that we go to, and there's milkweed up there. So he goes, we need some milkweed. So he's pulling milkweed up and bringing it, and he's the one that's finding most of the caterpillars, him and my little grandson, who's five. I do have a story. Yeah, I But it's it. not exactly about these butterflies. I'd love to hear When it anyway. I was a teacher, we had, all the kids had their own little uh, caterpillars that they kept, and uh, they fed them, you know, they had the, 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 the nutrient, whatever it was. And then we put them in a big, you know, when they formed the chrysalis. And then, and then we released them. We did, we did what you do with butterflies. <laughs> but um, I haven't been as involved with this because I've been away here and, here and there. Sure. But um, I know the procedure and I think it's wonderful. And it was wonderful to do with kids. That was Peppy. We also heard from Joe and Francis and Esther and Nora, some of the seniors in Indian Lake sharing their monarch butterfly stories. Coming up tomorrow morning during Northern Light, a visit to Indian Lake Central School's garden where milkweed grows, well, like weeds. And students and teachers learn more about butterflies and themselves. It's been a real interesting experience for citizen science, but... I believe the whole monarch life cycle tells us a lot more about ourselves as well. Coming up tomorrow, more about Indian Lake's efforts to save monarch butterflies that's coming up during Northern Light. And you can check out some photos a little later this morning on the front page of our website at ncpr.org. Now is 27 minutes past 8, and this is Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. And Monica, you had to have seen the fall colors over the weekend. Oh, they are. Wow. They're not just starting, but they've really been rolling <laughs> since August. Yes, definitely. 
and a lot going on this week. Uh, I, you know, it's going to be pretty mild, at least relatively mild, over the first week of autumn. So, yeah, get out and do something. I know. <laughs> there's so many things going on throughout our community, including uh, today. It's the first day of the new exhibit at the Tannery Pond Community Center. It's uh, It features the fiber work of Charlene Leary and Joy Muller-McCoola. Maybe you know the uh, these fiber artists. They're no strangers to the Adirondacks. This fiber partnership between Felter and Weaver brings us to discuss what they have in common. They source their inspiration and materials from the natural world, fibers from animals and plants that require feeding, growing, processing, and dyeing. Each stage of production requires water, our precious resource. And this really takes a look at a lot of those natural resources. You can find out more from the uh, from tanneripond.org. The uh, opening reception is scheduled for September 29th. That's Friday evening from 5 to 7 at the Tannery Pond Community Center in uh, in North Creek. Get outside in the Long Lake area and uh, check out some uh, art. Some It's an outdoor art installation featuring 11 local Long Lake artists. Original artwork on display in the community at various locations. Uh, if you're out recreating, sightseeing, hiking, walking, biking, Mount Sabatis Recreation Area, the town, the Lake Long Lake Town Beach, the Medical Center, Shaw Pond, the Town Hall. They'll be out throughout uh, much of October, I guess, and then stored for winter and put back on display next spring. And also continuing our uh, continuing our look at exhibits featuring fiber artists and uh, in Lake George at the Courthouse Gallery. Coming up, the new exhibit starting in October is from Hannah Washburn. She's an artist and a sculptor based out of Beacon, New York. And her sculptures are made from recycled clothes and textiles, furniture, household items, and other materials that have former uses and associations. And she sews by hand, works intuitively to create these organic forms. You can find out more from lakegeorgearts.org. And uh, that exhibit, the opening reception is Saturday, August 7th, uh, excuse me, October 7th from 4 to 6. And there's a conversation with her coming up in October. You can find out all about that at lakegeorgearts.org. That's it for the show for the day. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Mello. Thanks for listening. Be well.